Hello everyone and welcome to the 13th episode of Interlinked, a global affairs podcast series committed to help students develop a basic understanding of world affairs. Today we have with us Ambassador Shiv Shankar Menon. Mr. Menon was National Security Advisor to the Prime Minister of India from January 2010 to May 2014, Foreign Secretary of India from October 2006 to July 2009 and has served as the Indian Ambassador or High Commissioner to China, Pakistan, Sri Lanka and Israel. He has been a Fisher Family Fellow at the Kennedy School Harvard University 2015 and Richard Willem Fellow at MIT in 2015. He was chosen as one of the top 100 global thinkers by a foreign policy magazine in 2010. Thank you so for being with us today. Today's podcast focuses on India's relationship with China and I would like to begin with my first question. As young students of political science and international relations, how does one make sense of the current border situation between India China and India Nepal? What sources would you suggest a student to rely on in better understanding India's conflicted relationships with its neighboring nations, their historical context, given the rise in concerns from an infodemic of fake news and state propaganda led media outlets? affecting the production and dissemination of real news across media platforms well that's quite a question manshika <laughs> uh i it's true it is very difficult to make sense of of events when you're in the middle of them and frankly when they have not yet played themselves out so it's very hard an objective view to take some distance and to study them but if i were asked what should we look at to understand india china relations over time there are there are good books about this there are books which concentrate either on the diplomatic aspects or on the historical links uh tansen sen did a very good book on the historical links uh if you were just interested in the boundary question there's a very good book by somebody called ranjit singh kalha which traces the negotiating history between the republic of india and the people's republic of china uh there's a whole host of of books but it seems to me the important thing to remember when reading all these is that the chinese have a very strong sense of history in fact some people say that their nationalism is based on the sense of history and that history drives a lot of politics of chinese politics if you look at china's behavior today they themselves explain it as the china dream as trying to overcome the century of humiliation uh when china was one of the weakest uh, uh powers in the world and so to me it's worth studying the history of each of these problems if you look at the problem we face today in uh, ladakh and also in places i mean we've had incidents uh, in sikkim they arise primarily because we have the world's largest boundary dispute between india and china we thought that this boundary was settled after when we became independent and we had inherited the boundaries from the raj actually and uh, we proceeded on that assumption and the chinese let us proceed on that assumption until 1959 it, and it's even though 
Nehru had raised this with Joan Lai earlier in 54 and 56, when Joan Lai had said, look, our maps, we're still revising, we're still studying the issue and so on. But in 59, it became clear when Joan Lai wrote to Nehru in reply to his queries about what China was doing on the border, that there was a huge boundary dispute. And we tried to settle it by discussion, but uh, we saw a process between 59 and 62 where both sides were under domestic stress, where public opinion was roused, certainly in India, by the fact of what was happening in Tibet, the Dalai Lama came to India in 59 March, and by the incidents on the border where some of our people were killed uh, at Konkara, which is very close to where we are seeing some of these incidents now. Uh, and finally, we ended up in a downward spiral. We ended up in 1962 with the Chinese attacking us, taking territory in the West, in Ladakh, in Aksai Chin, uh, and holding that. Also taking territory in the East, but vacating that and going back to where they had been. Uh, and uh, so, and with disputed borders, which, which now, frankly, have lasted for a very long time. Now, we've tried to settle it, both sides, by discussing the issue, but have not managed to find a settlement. It's very difficult for a political leadership to change the way in which we have all learned how to draw the boundaries of our own country in school. Uh, this is a big political ask, especially in states which are relatively recent and in countries where nationalism is strong. Uh, like in India and in China. And so failing a settlement or an agreed boundary, what both sides did in the late 80s and in finally legally in 1993 was to agree to maintain the status quo until they settled the boundary. And uh, that peace by and large held until recently. Uh, why it held, I mean, each side will claim the credit, saying because we put in the investment, we wanted peace, but it held primarily because both countries were concentrating on their own internal economic development. They had other preoccupations, whether it was relations with the US, whether it was, uh, in our case, we also, we had issues with Pakistan and so on. And because in 1988, both countries were roughly the same size in, in terms of economy. Our GDP was very sim was similar. And there was a rough, we had achieved some kind of balance of forces which didn't give either side such a big advantage that they thought they could change it militarily. But that has changed since 1988. Today, China's economy is much bigger than India's. The effective balance on the on the border is still not as bad as the differential size of the economies would suggest. But uh, there is a problem. India has worked very hard to try and improve her infrastructure all along the border. And uh, from the Chinese point of view, that is something that worries them. Which is why you hear now that we have almost completed this road along the line of actual control, uh, some of these Chinese actions might be meant for local military purposes to ensure dominance or the ability to interdict this road. Uh, but frankly, 
there's a lot of speculation on why the Chinese chose at this time to uh, move across the line in several spots. There, people speculate on political reasons, on their domestic turbulence after COVID. There's a whole series of explanations. I think we have to let the dust settle before we can actually come to a conclusion. Many people talk of it in terms of signaling, but this is pretty inefficient signaling if you have to guess what the signal is. So I think for me, therefore, the likely explanations are that uh, the Chinese leadership needs uh, this. They, maybe they feel that this is, these are necessary actions in order to restore their predominance on the, on the line. Which is, I think, that's that's really not very sensible thinking because uh, we've seen what happened. India resisted and restored the status quo in the Galwan and is determined to do so. I think the government, the opposition, everyone has said so, uh, and so this only unites India. But both sides don't want this to escalate or much worse. They know the past. And so it seems to me that we've had military talks and an agreement to disengage so that the troops are not in immediate contact. And we've had, we are having diplomatic talks as well today, for instance, is another round. Uh, so let's see. I, I think the two countries have the wisdom and the ability to actually cope with this. Uh, but let's see how it develops. Thank you, sir. That was very insightful. Um, could you please help us provide a historical context of India's own relationship with neighboring nations like Nepal, China? You spoke a little bit about China in your first answer. Um, Bangladesh, Bhutan, post-independence. And how have these bordered conflicts affected India's strategic interests and bilateral relationships with these countries, apart from the most often much-talked border concerns with Pakistan? Well, actually, the border with Pakistan is one that is, uh, you know, the international border was fixed with partition. And even the line of control, in, when, which was first drawn in December 48, uh, is a line which both DGMOs have not just examined on a map, but it has actually been fenced on the, on the ground. Uh, and that actually is well known to both sides. It's very clear. You can actually see it at night when you're flying over it because it's all lit up. Uh, but the other borders, I think like Pakistan in the Pakistan case, because of partition, we have a certain legacy and, and a certain boundary the way it is. Right. But if you think of it, South Asia, when the British left it, they uh their idea of the defense of south A of india of their empire in india was actually not one based on a very clear fixed boundary it was based on a series of zones there was the portion that was administered directly by the british which uh in the west i mean when you're talking about pakistan was really up to the indus and then there was an area where they allowed local rulers to rule, in this case, the tribes, whether the Afridis and so on, 
or where no other influence was allowed to come in. And beyond that, they actually had a ring of states where again, they tried to be the only or certainly the predominant power and not to allow any inimical power to come in. So what they used to call the Himalayan fringe or the Himalayan glasses, uh, states like Afghanistan, Tibet, uh, it used to be Thailand, uh, and all the way into Iran to try and keep the Russian empire, which they saw as a big threat away. So you had a fluid set of boundaries. You had an inner line, an administrative line. British law, for instance, only applied up to the Indus. Beyond the Indus, tribal law applied except five yards on each side of the highway. Uh, and beyond that, beyond the Durand line into Afghanistan, Afghan law applied. So this was a, and a similar thing in the East, actually. They had an inner line, then they had a, a boundary, the McMahon line. Uh, then they had Tibet, where Chinese influence was minimal uh, for centuries, actually. And Tibet actually functioned as an independent state for most of that period. With independence, two things happened. One is China came into Tibet in 1950. So for the first time in history, we had a boundary with China. Uh, we, second thing, the state structures in South Asia were actually built at that time, whether it's the creation of Pakistan, whether it is the, you, you'll notice our treaties with Nepal, right. with Bhutan, were all signed in the same period, 4950. Uh, and these were new states. The Myanmar, which had been administered from Calcutta until 1936, Burma became independent. Uh, and so with each of them, we had to negotiate boundaries. We had to negotiate a relationship. Uh, Sri Lanka, which had been a crown colony, not part of the British Empire in that sense, not run by the Secretary of State of India, that was also became independent. So you were now dealing with a whole set of new states. These might be ancient nations. The peoples might have been there for, for century, millennia, but they're new states and we had to develop a new relationship. And there were two parts of this complication. One is the boundaries, which frankly, we finished quite quickly. Within something like 15 years, we had done most of our land boundaries. Uh, and there were really very few problems left. The only big problem left was China and therefore the trijunctions with China, wherever India, Nepal, China were together or India, Bhutan, China, when those boundaries met, there, those parts, because the boundary with China was not settled, those were still troublesome or indeterminate or not agreed. Nice. Uh, but the other boundaries and by the late 70s, uh, in fact, well, early 80s, we'd also done our maritime boundaries, which are considerable, uh, with Malaysia, with uh, Singapore, with Indonesia, with Sri Lanka. And we had actually managed, it's quite a, quite a remarkable achievement that we actually did our boundaries. Because don't forget, at the same time, these states are also building themselves, building their own nationhood their own sense of nationality. 
And the simplest way to do that is territoriality and othering your neighbors. But across every single border that we have, and when I say border, I mean the zone where you interact with your neighbors. Boundary meaning just the line that separates you, the legally agreed line. In every single boundary and border that we have has cross-border ethnicities. Mizos on our side are Chin on the Burma side, Myanmar side, whether it's Nagas on our side and on the Myanmar side. Uh, everyone, the Madhes, for instance, you can't say that there's a big ethnic line that divides what's in the Madhes in Nepal and what's in North Bihar or North, or North UP. So we have, you have Tamils in Sri Lanka and in Tamil Nadu. Uh, you have cross-border ethnicities. You have traditional links across these borders. You look at Bangladesh. Traditionally, it's the waterways of Bangladesh which have always provided connectivity to our northeast. I mean, they used to all flow through the waterways which we have slowly started restoring. But when states are building their sense of nationhood, their nationalism, uh, I think it's natural that you will rub up against each other. Then when you will try and other your neighbors. And so some amount of friction, I think, was natural in the early years of these new states. I think now most of us have actually figured out that this is not necessary, that we really need a cooperative neighborhood. Certainly for India, we need a peaceful periphery if we want to transform India, if we want to develop India. And if you look at the process in the last three decades uh, at what we have done with Nepal, with Bangladesh, with Burma, with Sri Lanka, I think there's been a big change. We, our economies are much more integrated than they were before. And we have managed, I think, to overcome some of the difficulties that we have. That doesn't mean that we've solved all our problems. No, not at all. In Pakistan is the, really the exception because, uh, you know, Ziaul Haq, when he was asked why he was doing Nizami Mustafa, why he was bringing in Islamization, uh, he said, look, if an Egyptian stops being an Egyptian, he's uh, a Muslim, he's still an Egyptian. If a Turk stops being a Muslim, he's still a Turk. But if a Pakistani stops being a Muslim, he's an Indian. Right. And so there is an identity problem in, in, there is, and when the basis of that identity is that we got our independence from India, then, you know, you must expect that that relationship is going to be troubled. And it'll take a while, I think, for that to be worked through. Uh, and so if you look overall at, at, the, at the nature of the relationship, there are points where there will be difference, obviously. I mean, and in the Nepalese case, for instance, the trijunction uh, in the West, which uh, it wasn't disputed until 1990. It's only after 1990 when some politicians in Nepal have found it useful for domestic political gain to start raising an issue and but this, this was not something that was ever raised before. In fact, the China-Nepal Boundary Treaty of 1963 makes it quite clear that these areas are part of India, whether it's Lipulek or Kalapani. Uh, so some of this is driven by politics, by local politics, by what I would call the process of, you know, 
of rousing nationalism and using it for political gain. Some of it is natural. I'm the reverse shift between Bihar and Nepal. And, you know, more soil is deposited on one side or the other. The boundary, the, some boundary pillars get washed away. Uh, there will be local interests on both sides who will be affected. You end up with a local dispute. Now, if you don't show the wisdom as states to actually deal with it, then slowly over time it becomes, it festers and becomes, becomes a real problem and much harder to settle because issues of territory, as you know, are not never easy. I mean, the cry is always, oh, you've betrayed the motherland and sold our territory. So politicians are very careful about how they deal with boundary disputes. But overall, I think we've done well. With Bangladesh, for instance, we've uh, managed to not just settle the boundary, but also exchange enclaves and to settle citizenship problems for people who were on the borders. But the answer to my mind, long-term answer, is actually more integration and we should stop fighting this, the fact that people work, marry, trade, uh, and actually are cousins across all these borders. And the answer therefore for me is, is integration, is opening it up and allowing people to do what comes naturally to them. Because don't forget, these boundaries are sovereignty lines that states have chosen to draw. But history teaches you that there isn't a single boundary on earth which is exactly where it was 200 years ago. Not even the Canada-US boundary. They've all changed and they evolve. They are like a snapshot of a particular moment and a particular balance between two sovereignties. But that's not how life is. Life doesn't follow sharp lines like that. Life operates in the border zones where you interact, where cultures mingle. And South Asia is full of affinities. I mean, actually, if you look at it, we have more affinities among ourselves than most other regions in the world. It's hard to think of another region which, which has so much in common. Right. So, so for me, really, the way forward out of this is, I mean, when you look at it historically and as part of the formation of new states, yes, the states will be, will be suspicious, will want to build up their own nationalism. And, you know, nationalism is often grown at the expense of others <laughs> rather than love of your own country, which is patriotism. So it seems to me there is, there is scope actually to improve what we have, but I, I do think we shouldn't minimize what we have achieved in the last 70 years or so. Um, thank you so much, Professor. Uh, it was a very interesting perspective. Um, but I just also wanted to dig a little deeper on what you said uh, for the first question uh, with, it, with uh, respect to the recent context of India-China face-off in the Galvan Valley of Ladakh. Uh, with the nature of information mm -hmm. presented on Chinese troop accommodation in the region by by the defense journalists like Ajay Shukla, amongst others. Where do you think yeah. India's defense and intelligence network failed or was incapable of responding to China's advances in the region and altering of status quo? Uh, how could have India been, how could have India better responded to the situation? And is there a pattern being seen in China's expansionist measures of territorial claims from South China to North and East of South 
South Asia. How can India respond to such assertive militant authoritarianism? Well, uh, two parts to this. One is, I think we're still in the midst of what, uh, you know, McNamara used to call the fog of war. And as I said earlier, when you're so close to events, and frankly, what are we depending on here? We're depending on leaks, on sources, most of them unnamed, on what somebody has told some journalist or somebody who interprets a satellite picture, which is open to multiple interpretations. I'd be very careful about saying, oh, there was an intelligence failure or this was wrong and we should have done that. The time for that is after you're past the crisis. When Kargil happened, for instance, we dealt with the problem, restored the line and peace. And then we set up a commission which actually looked at who had done what and what was wrong and, and came up with a whole host of suggestions of what we needed to change, both institutionally and in our practices. And a very useful commission, a group of ministers then approved that. And, then, and that, that's how we actually set up a whole set of organizations and so on. After this crisis, I think will be the time for us to do a little introspection, do exactly the same sort of thing. But I don't think now is the moment because it's nowhere near over. And it's not only Galwan, it's a whole series of places. It's from Depsang to Hot Springs to, you know, I mean, anyway. Uh, so I'm not sure that I want to go into that first part of your question. But you are right. What we're seeing in terms of changed Chinese behavior and much more assertiveness, it seems to be part of a larger pattern of Chinese behavior. In just since Corona started itself, they have become much more active sending ships uh, and so on, and submarines to the Senkakus, which they dispute with Japan uh, in the East China Sea. They have been sending aircraft, military aircraft, to overfly Taiwan after the election of Tsai Ing-wen. They have imposed, or they are in the process of imposing, a security law on Hong Kong which uh, clearly violates all the commitments they made to allow one country, two systems, to allow Hong Kong its freedoms for 50 years and to manage its own affairs. Because this is a law that the Chinese parliament will pass, but not Hong Kong. And Hong Kong has had no say in it at all. Uh, so, and that, I think, in fact, changes Chinese policy towards Taiwan because Hong Kong was supposed to be the example of one country, two systems, of how Taiwan could come back to the motherland uh, without losing her autonomy. And clearly, if, if that's not working in Hong Kong, where they faced protests now for years, uh, then it's not going to set a good example to Taiwan. Uh, we've seen Chinese assertiveness on our border. We've seen what they've done. They've actually crossed the LAC in a whole host of points. And they are still in occupation of territory on our side of the LAC. They're anyway in occupation of Indian territory in Aksai Chin as a whole. But they are much more assertive about it. Otherwise, we wouldn't have debts, had had debts on, on the 15th of June for the first time since 1975. Uh, so there is an issue there of assertive Chinese behavior. Now there's a whole host of possible explanations. Uh, one, the op well, one school believes that the Chinese think their moment has come. 
that the West is in terminal decline. They've shown a total inability to deal with COVID. It's been economic collapse there. And uh, that now is a time for China to assert her rights and to right historical wrongs which have been done to China. Uh, so that's one school. The other suggests that you have a Chinese leadership which has not done very well in dealing with COVID, despite the propaganda and what they might project, which is under domestic economic stress because their economy has crashed just like everyone else's. And while they think they might be the first to recover, it's still recovering from quite a blow. And where the domestic stress of running a, a tight single party rule authoritarian structure uh, is actually getting in the way of the economic changes and reforms and the freedoms that people themselves want. So faced with that, therefore with declining legitimacy, that the regime looks for outside enemies, that it seeks external distractions, that it thinks that by rousing nationalism, it can actually increase its legitimacy, but also get people to rally around the government, as they all do in most countries, whenever there's an external crisis or an external enemy, people put aside their political differences because their nationalism, they suggest, everybody will argue that now is not the time to fight our political battles. Let's deal with the external enemy first. That's the other alternative, which is right, we won't know for some time. We won't know until later. But either way, whichever one you think is true suggests that it's structural that therefore we Chinese assertiveness is here to stay for the foreseeable future until it fails or succeeds when they can change their policy line. What, whether it will fail or succeed, frankly, I don't know. I cannot say, but clearly what they have managed to do is to unite most of the countries on their periphery uh, to actually coordinate their defense, their security, their intelligence links, if you look at what's happened in the last decade, there is an informal sort of coalition of China's neighbors stretching all the way from Japan through Australia, Vietnam, Indonesia, Singapore, India, and so on, who are working together on maritime security, on who are all concerned by what they see. But each of us has significant relationships with China. In our case, for instance, China's our biggest source of goods uh, that we import. Uh, goods which mean that the Indian consumer gets things cheap, but also that Indian industry works. The APIs for Indian pharmaceuticals, for instance, 70%, 68% come from China. You look at our electronics industry, it imports parts. The automobiles depend on things from China. So, so it's a complicated relationship with China for all of us, but none of us is comfortable with this new pattern of assertive Chinese behavior. And we have to see where and how far it will go. I think all of us are interested in encouraging much more responsible Chinese behavior. Uh, and we will use whatever means we can to do so. Let's see. Let's see whether we succeed. I think we are right now, if you look at the Asia Pacific, we are between orders. And so we are, none of us is really sure where exactly it's going. Uh, we can make some guesses 
because the balance of power has shifted very rapidly in the last few years. Both India and China have grown very quickly. Almost half of Asia's GDP is actually just these two countries now. And they also, last year at least, contributed over 30% of growth in the world's economy. Uh, if you look at relative shares of global GDP, they've also grown. India's around 8%, China somewhere around 17%. And the share of, of Europe has actually diminished steadily in global GDP. So the balance of power has shifted. The center of gravity of the world economy and politics is now in the Asia Pacific. And this is, for me, a process of, of adjustment, of each one trying to find his, his position, his place, trying to uh, ensure that their own interests are guarded, are protected. Uh, it's going to be difficult with, as long as this jostling is going on. And so I foresee at least a few years of, of trouble, quite frankly. Uh, thank you, Professor. Um, you spoke about how the current tension between India and China can or cannot be a consequence of China's domestic political landscape, uh, of how the Communist Party's mismanagement and administrative failure to deal with the COVID, or it can be just uh, it can just be a coincidence. But I also wanted uh, to... not a coincidence, and uh, no, I think this kind of thing in China doesn't happen by accident. <laughs> it's either either a, a political response to domestic stress, or it's, a, it's an attempt to say that, oh, now our moment has come, so let's try and assert our rights. Right, but what do you see, uh, how do you see China's diplomatic, strategic, or economic policies changing during the pandemic and in a post-pandemic world order? Is there What we've seen thing? so far, what we've really seen so far is an acceleration of existing trends rather than a change. Uh, you know, we all now, we see China's so-called wolf warrior diplomacy, right? Very aggressive, very assertive. Uh, but uh, wolf warrior diplomacy has been going on for some time, which is why I tend to the first explanation that it's a result of domestic stress because Chinese diplomats behave like this, you know, attack any enemy and so on, not in any expectation of convincing others. Because clearly to go pushing your way about is no way to win friends. But I think they do this when they sense that their own position at home is shaky, that they need to prove to the leaders at home how loyal they are and how national they are and how nationalist, how patriotic they are. And that happens whenever things in China tend to get tense. During the Cultural Revolution, for instance, the behavior of Chinese diplomats abroad was, was pretty offensive. Uh, and this is something that we've seen now for, uh, for a few years, actually, this kind of wolf warrior diplomacy. Uh, do I think it'll go on? That depends on whether I think, whether you think that the situation in China will settle down or not. I'm not sure. Uh, there is, you know, something that Lutwak used to call great power autism, that the more powerful a country gets, the less empathy it 
shows to other countries, the less it understands other people. And frankly, uh, they then don't understand why don't other countries then respect our power. And uh, so you see this kind of tone deaf diplomacy, if you will. Uh, I am not sure that we can expect this to change in the short run because COVID has actually accentuated the stresses both within China and in the global economy. And if you look at the relationship between China and the US or most other contentious relationships, COVID has actually made it much harder for leaders to do the kind of give and take, compromise, bargaining, which diplomacy requires. And if you want to get to a peaceful solutions negotiated between two sides, then you need those. But leaders who stress their nationalist credentials, who, are, who present themselves as strong men, they find that very hard to do, to be reasonable. So I'm not sure that it's not only China. I mean, it's also true of other countries. And I'm not sure that uh, we can expect much of a change. Look at the failure of the multilateral institutions in their response to COVID. Uh, and that, for me, proves the point that this is not a time when we can expect reason, logic, and good sense to prevail. Uh, every leader in every country is finding somebody else to blame because nobody has covered themselves in glory in the way they've dealt with the pandemic. I mean, the Chinese are blaming the Americans, the Americans are blaming the Chinese and WHO. Uh, many other people blame WHO. I mean, there's a whole uh, blame game going on because frankly, nobody has an answer and no political leader knows where this is going to end up in six months, one year from now. And therefore, and they don't want to carry the blame which is likely. So you see this kind of politics around you. Uh, will it be cleared up very quickly? If COVID vanishes, yes, probably. But since that seems most unlikely, none of the scientists seem to expect that. In fact, they seem to expect that we'll have to learn to live with it. Uh, then you must expect this kind of politics to continue, this kind of wolf warrior diplomacy, but not just by the Chinese by others as well to continue. Um, thank you, Professor. Um, bringing back the discussion uh, to, uh, to the Indian context, uh, Professor Ram Goa recently wrote a piece uh, for NDTV arguing yeah. how PM Modi's overt personal outreach to China's President Xi reminded him of a common historical, historical thread of action seen by PM Nehru's similar reliance on personalizing relations with China's leadership in defining India's engagement with China, which then led to a disastrous co consequence and a war. Um, was the his is history repeating herself uh, with the rising multipolarity or divided United States and other parts of the liberal de democratic order in decline? How must India engage with China's growing presence in the world's politics? economical uh, landscape? Well, I'm not sure that history is quite repeating itself because, you know, I think there's tremendous differences between uh, Jawaharlal Nehru and Narendra Modi. I mean, Nehru was an intellectual. I don't think Nehru ever thought that his relationship with Mao, which by the way was non-existent, Nehru didn't even invite Mao to visit India 
when he met him in 54 in Beijing. Uh, or with Zhou Enlai was going to actually drive India-China relations. I think if you look at what Nehru wrote at that time itself to the chief ministers, uh, it's quite clear that Nehru had a much more, was very aware of, of Chinese nationalism, of the risks in the relationship, that he never actually presented his personal relationship as driving or guiding or being any form of insurance in the relationship. That mistake he never made. Uh, I think the problem in the relationship is, uh, of course, we have different ways of working, the Chinese and we, and uh, Indian political leaders tend to assume that Chinese leaders will work the way we do. Both of us have a history of misunderstanding each other. And it's, it's, the problem is really mirror imaging. You assume the other person thinks and behaves like you. Uh, which he doesn't. Uh, Mao Zedong told the Politburo before the 62 war, when they decided to go to war, he said, we'll fight a war. And uh, so what, you know, in 30 years, we'll all forget about it. We'll be friends again. And the Chinese are capable of that. They fought in Korea against the Americans, lost huge numbers of men. Uh, until 1953, ended the war with an armistice. By 1971, less than 20 years later, they are entering into a virtual alliance with Kissinger and Nixon against the Soviet Union. Uh, that kind of pragmatism in India, nobody's forgotten 62. I mean, we're well beyond 30 years, beyond 50 years. Uh, uh, but nobody has actually said, oh, we can give up. And don't forget, so people project the, their own behavior. And that's part of the problem between India and China. I, so long as we both had other preoccupations, were concentrating on our own domestic development. So roughly the 80s, 90s, noughts of this century, uh, the relationship was pretty stable. But you know, India-China relations have been deteriorating now for several years and the signs are clear. Uh, look at the NSG. In 2008, China went along with the consensus to give us an exemption, a clear exemption, and everything that we wanted from the NSG. Uh, by 2015, they were quite happy to stand up and oppose our membership of the NSG in public, in articles in the People's Daily. Uh, they were giving Pakistan cover by refusing to allow Masood Azhar to be listed as a terrorist, even though it was quite clear the rest of the world saw very clearly what they're doing. They've increased their commitment to Pakistan in the China-Pakistan economic corridor, $62 billion when Xi Jinping visited in 2015. Uh, in 1996, actually, President Chiang Zemin stood up in the Pakistani parliament and told them, you should do with India what we're doing, discuss your differences, but at least do the normal business of trade, travel, and improve your relationship with them. Of course, Pakistanis didn't like hearing that, but that was a neutral stance by China. By 2015, it's quite different. What you hear now from the Xi Jinping government in China is a clear commitment to Pakistan, a much stronger commitment to Pakistan. China has projects in POK, which means that she has a stake in maintaining Pakistani control of Indian territory. Uh, so things have changed considerably and no amount of, you know, 
personal diplomacy or rapport or hugging and so on is going to solve that basic problem. Uh, I think both India and China and the world around us has changed considerably since we did the basic understanding, the modus vivendi, the uh, in 1988 during Rajiv Gandhi's visit to China. And that understanding was, we'll discuss our differences, like the boundary, for instance, but we won't allow that to prevent us from cooperating where we can. And on the international stage as well, we will work together. And we did work together in WTO on climate change negotiations and so on. And we did keep the peace on the border. But now I think it's changed. As I said, India has changed, China has changed, uh, the, the context has changed, the world is between orders. I don't think the world is multipolar. It might be multipolar economically, but not yet militarily and certainly politically not yet. There is no order. So it's not as though the liberal international order led by the US West, that, that has now been replaced by a new multipolar order, not yet. In fact, we are now between orders and that's part of the problem. It therefore tempts people to try and do things like occupy the South China Sea, etc. Uh, we are rubbing up against China in the periphery, which, is, which we share, which is our periphery. It's also their periphery. So we have a set of issues here, which I think require us in our own interest to sit down with the Chinese and work out what are your core interests? What are my core interests? Where do, we, where do these clash? Can we manage them? Can we settle them? And see how we can take this relationship forward because we're two big countries, both of whom have huge domestic tasks still. And it makes no sense, there's no conceivable gain from conflict between the two, which justifies it. So we therefore need to see how we manage the relationship and come to a common understanding of how we take it forward. It's true, I think what we've seen recently in Ladakh shows the limits of personal diplomacy and I hope we've learned the right lessons from that. Thank you so much, Professor. Uh, with this, we have come to the end of our podcast for today. It was a very insightful and an enriching discussion, sir. Thank you so much for being with us today.